we are in first corinthians chapter 9 and we are about to engage some verses that have some powerful powerful implications for us and very helpful implications for us in the way in which we do life and live in relationships uh, let me introduce something before I get to this, because there's, a, there's a, a structure to this verse that I want to capture and set up. Begin by, by introducing you to the thought of, if you're new to the church, new to this whole preaching thing, um, let me answer the question, does, what does preaching have in common with a beer commercial? Did I put that in your outline? Okay. So just in case you were curious. Um, well, just like a beer commercial... Preaching, I'm here as a preacher to convince you of something. And beer commercials are there to convince you of something too, right? They're, they're, they're there to convince you that if you just drank the right brand, your evening could go as well as their evening is going. And that's just simple, you know. Their situation got an upgrade, got improved because they went from some loser beer to the right beer. And made all the difference in the world, right? Um, well, I'm here to convince you of something similar, but quite different than that, honestly. Um, but I'm here to convince you of something that, that's very biblical in this sense. God's aware that life needs an upgrade. And most of us are here today sharing common ground. Even if you don't know a lot of the people here in this room. We're all interested in upgrades, Right? We, we would like for our life to improve at some level in some way. We, we, we're just open to that. And we're eager for that. We, we want an improvement. Right? When you show up and maybe you made reservations somewhere and you get to the front desk and the front desk person says, Oh, we've upgraded you to the, to the honeymoon suite. I mean, you're kind of like, nobody like says, nah, not necessary. Whatever I had was good enough, right? I mean, when I show up at the airport and they tell me, you know, I've rented a car and they, they've upgraded me. It's like an adventure. Like, I'm like, oh, they've upgraded me. <laughs> That's right. They've upgraded. I've got an upgrade. This is good. Well, do you know God is aware that in a fallen world, life is going to feel like it needs an upgrade? Because it does need an upgrade. Our life is broken and, and it needs some help, right? So let me put two verses in front of you that... I'm going to refer to as we travel through Paul's passage in 1 Corinthians. John chapter 10, verse 10. Jesus said, the thief comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. But I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. All right, so even in God, there is this life an abundant life. There, there's an upgrade for this condition that we all exist in called life, right? When Peter was preaching on the day of Pentecost and, and the Spirit of God has fallen and he's trying to give an explanation to a big crowd in Jerusalem about what is happening right here. Well, he, he explains the gospel to them and he reaches back into the Old Testament and he grabs this statement from King David. King David acknowledged this and Peter said, this is, this is what the gospel does for us. It says, you have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Right, so it, if I just ponder these couple of passages here. Right? There, there is something of a life that's available beyond the life that you have. That's some pretty good news, right? There's an element to that life that is only available because of what Jesus Christ did and who he is. Now, you can leave here today or maybe you came in here today and, and Jesus is at a distance. And you don't have time for him. You're not even sure you believe in him. But you're interested in an upgrade. Well, you can get an upgrade of some kind, I'm sure. You can make your life different than what it was. But you can't get whatever Jesus was talking about. The Son of God who created us said, I came to give you something that you can't get anywhere else. And if I hadn't come, you couldn't have it. So there's a life that becomes available to us through Christ that's unique. And then he, 
He calls on us to walk on these paths of life. And I like that phrase. I like the paths of life, right? It's not a, it's not a point. It's, you don't just arrive at a point. You arrive at a path that you're going to travel on this path. It's going to take you to certain places. But it, it's not just a moment. It's not just a box you check off. It's, it's a realization. It's coming into a fuller understanding and I want to say that's going to be really critical to what we examine today. You're going to walk on this and it's going to have deeper and deeper impact on your life. So if your idea was coming to Christ and, you know, okay, so I'm saved and we check that off. I'm, I'm a Christian now, like, like you've arrived. Well, in one sense you've arrived and in another sense you just found the path. Then you begin to walk on it. And with that walk is going to become other things are going to grow and intensify in our lives. And if you don't get down the path very far, then that intensity is not going to be a part of your life. But, but notice this explanation. Peter preaching to a big crowd. You will make me full of gladness. With your presence. I'm going to stop for a moment. I don't know what upgrade you're interested in. Maybe it's just a beer commercial upgrade. I'm not sure what you're really here for. But is your gladness, I don't know what, I don't know what makes you glad. But is your gladness at all related to the presence of God? If you could get an upgrade this morning, if your life could just be better than it is, if you could change the story, if you could arrive at a better place in your life, and you're thinking what that is, does that place feature the presence of God? Or is it, wow, no, yeah, no. I mean, it'd be nice if Jesus was there. It, yeah. But really, it's about this, and about that, and about this. Well, if I just had those things, right? All right, there's an upgrade available to us in what we're about to read. But like many things God does, it's a, it's a different path than the typical one. And we might need to be prepared for it's going to be really different to arrive at a place of gladness that God had in mind. It's going to be a little different than what maybe we were thinking. So let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9, starting in verse 19. And really, we're going to live in verse 19, and the next four verses, or three verses, are just going to unpack verse 19 for us. Paul says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew, in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Well, Father, we thank you for words that are living words. Words that are not like any other words. Lord, there are slogans and ideas and posts. Billboards abound. But Lord, your words are living words. Your words take into account our entire being, our eternal entire beings. We're going to last forever. We have bodies and souls and emotions and thoughts. Lord, let your word find its way powerfully into everything about us today. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to title this, Ultimate Things and the Paths that Lead Us There. Right, there's an ultimate thing in verse 19 here. Right, he kind of he leads his way into it. And this is the structure that screams out at me. He, he speaks a little bit about being free from all, being a servant. But then there's this ultimate thing that sticks out here. Here's why. Here's why all that matters. That I might win 
more of them. That I might win more of them. He's going to use that phrase, win more of them, like seven times, six or seven times in this. Winning more of them is a massively important thing to Paul. It's, it's an ultimate thing to him in his life. Verse 22, he says that I might save some. Verse 23, I do it all for the sake of the gospel. Right? What, a, what a summary that everything about Paul's life, everything about his strategy, everything about his values and his goals is caught up in one thing. Just, just one thing that has so much weight to it. That's what I mean by ultimate things. And, and quite honestly, if I, I were to say, you know, there's a path to walk on. Path number one I want to point out here is realizing that life needs ultimate things. It doesn't just need daily, momentary, flittering, seasonal, 12-year-old, 30-year-old, 60-year-old. It doesn't need just those things. It needs ultimate things. It needs things that are big and, and weighty, that sit in our lives, that demand something of us that have a defining element to us something so big that when you are touched by it your life is shaped and defined your identity gets caught up in this and you know every one of our lives needs that sort of thing charles Spurgeon said it is a grand thing to see a man thoroughly possessed with one master passion Lives with many aims are like water trickling through innumerable streams, none of which is wide enough or deep enough to float the merest cockshell of a boat. But a life with one objective is like a mighty river flowing between its banks, bearing to the ocean a multitude of ships and spreading fertility on either side. Give me a man not only a gr- with a great objective in his soul, but thoroughly possessed by it. His powers, all concentrated, and he on fire with vehement zeal for his supreme objective. Give me a man engrossed with holy love as to his heart and filled with some masterly celestial thought as to his brain. Such a man was Paul. I mention Paul because what he was, what we ought, every one of us, to be. And though we cannot share in his office, not being apostles, and though we cannot share in his talents or in his inspiration, yet we ought to be possessed by the same spirit which actuated him. And let me also add, we ought to be possessed by it in the same degree. Right, what a danger we do when we come to the scriptures and we, and we just decide to ascribe this to some unique setting, a unique man. Paul was weird. He had something going on in his life that's not like mine. So... Yeah, he was about one thing, but I'm, I'm, I got a lot of other things. There was an ultimate thing in the life of Paul that would play a shaping, defining, it would guide him, it, w- it would tell him who he was going to be and who he was not going to be. His relationships would get touched by, everything about him would get touched by this ultimate thing. Right? So, question, do, do, you, do you know people in your life like that? They're a little obsessive. Right? They got borders and boundaries in their lives that they get determined by this ultimate thing. You know, at this point in life, I've, I've lived a few years now, and, and I, I have some people that I've journeyed a long way with who this describes their lives. Right? And there's a bunch of them I could, I could tell you some stories about that are in this room uh, that. When I first met them, they were obsessed with the mission of the gospel. And today, they are obsessed with the mission of the gospel. All right, so some of you guys know Frank and Annette Loria. I've known Frank and Annette since they were 22 years old. And when they were 22 years old, they were obsessed with the gospel. They constructed their life in such a way that it it left room for the gospel. They learned about the gospel. They lived lives towards others because of the gospel. If you fast forward, they're a little older than 22 now. I won't say how old Frank 
tried to claim he was young just a moment ago. That's what happens when you get old. You don't even know how old you are anymore. (laughs) Uh, So these many years later, uh, still obsessed with the gospel. Still a weighty ultimate thing that describes and frames and creates identity and relationships and settings of life, etc. When I walked into this church some 36 years ago, uh, Bill and Nancy Treby were helping to shape and define the existence of this church investing their lives in innumerable ways in whatever gifts they had they were showing up in the life of this church because of a value that they placed on an ultimate thing there was an ultimate thing about them and you know you got around bill and you found out he was an attorney and he was a pretty successful attorney etc but but what you got around didn't leave you walking away going hey look at the attorney It, it left you walking away from a man and his wife who together loved something ultimately. All right, so if I fast forward now 36 years, uh, I, there's no difference in their life. They are still ultimately defined by the gospel. Every Sunday morning, I have the joy of sitting in my office with some of the elders, and Bill's one of them, who come in and through tears every Sunday morning, he prays for our gathering together. And for your well-being. And for what God will do through the preaching of God's word. He is obsessed with the same thing he was obsessed with 36 years ago. God intended for there to be weighty things that sit in our lives. That don't go away. That shape and form us. That everything else pings and bounces off of it. Comes and goes. But, But this is an ultimate thing. And Paul was affected. He walked a path where there was a weighty ultimate thing in his life. Right? This common way that Paul looked at life. Acts chapter 20, verse 22. About to make some decisions in his life. Sharing this with some other leaders. He announces, now behold, I am going to Jerusalem. Constrained by the Spirit. Not knowing what will happen to me there. Except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city. That imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value. Nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course. Ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus. To testify to the gospel of the grace of God. If only that, if only that one ultimate thing, that, that's what frames my life. And, and Paul would then make decisions in his life. And at this point in his life, this is an example, he is going to Jerusalem. That's a bad idea in the natural. Because it's known, Paul, there are, there's, there are hostile forces awaiting you in Jerusalem. If you go to Jerusalem, bad things may happen to you. He at least knows that. He's not quite sure exactly what those bad things are going to be. But he at least knows that option probably leads to a bad place. Isn't that enough right there? That's a decision maker for me. I don't know how you are. Right? I come to a decision. I kind of weigh a few things. Is that going to be good or bad? Bad? Okay, that's definitely not for me. And now just move on. But not Paul. Constrained by the Spirit. I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit. That, that, that constrained word is not a, not a super comfy word, quite honestly. It, it's a word that means to be bound and tied to something. It's like this dude's hogtied by the Holy Spirit. He's going, there's something operating in him that's going to constrain his decisions. He's going there. Something in him is operating at such a strong level. I I cannot see myself doing anything else but this. And I don't even know what's going to happen. No guarantee of comfort. This may not work out well. But... That's not what's in control of him. 
And even being aware that there's danger and discomfort awaiting him, that doesn't slow him up. See, there are, there are things that come into our lives that they sit in our lives at, at, at such a weighty level that they, they begin to influence great power over other things, including our willingness to do or not do certain things, to go certain places, to be around certain people as we, and I'm not going to spend time in this verse in the classic sense that we typically do, explaining, you know, the Jews and those under law and those not under the law and the weak and how to associate with those. I'm actually not going to land very much in that space at all. But, but Paul is going to live in spaces that probably were not preferential for him. Because something weighty in your life will make you do that, won't it? Right, if you really, really feel like, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm supposed to be a doctor. I'm supposed to be, I'm supposed to be a doctor. And, and, you know, by the time you get out of med school and your student loan is, you know, a small fortune, you sure? You sure that's what you want to do? Right, you'll do some crazy stuff for the things that weigh things in your life, won't you? If they've got weight, you might do something with it. Right? When Paul says this in Acts 20, verse 24, he says, But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. If only. Right, how do you end up devaluing everything else in your life, demoting everything else in your life. Well, you just need something bigger than everything else in your life. Right? I, mean, if, I mean, most of us from New Orleans, you know, the biggest mountain we drive over is a levee. You know, that's like, wow, it's a levee. Yeah, how many of you guys know that when a levee is a mountain to you, a speed bump is a giant problem? <laughs> right? But if you've seen Mount Everest... Levies and speed bumps are no big deal, are they? They, they? they lose their value. They're not intimidating. They're not this big, oh, kind of thing. Right, l- listen, that's an illustration of our lives, isn't it? We've got, we've got little problems that we treat like massive deal killer. I, there's no way I could be happy with this in my life. Paul had an ability to deprecious things. Right? We have an ability to overprecious things. We overprecious so many things. But I want to be careful in how I'm saying this today, but because there's there's something missing in us that was not missing in Paul. Paul had a Mount Everest. He had something big and weighty and influential that made everything else get smaller become less critical and less important no longer controlling oh my gosh I've got to get all that stuff right because something else was bigger that he knew no no this is what's got to be right this is this is the ultimate controlling thing this is what's ultimate for me listen if you don't catch this you don't do the rest of this verse When we go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, if you don't catch this, there's nothing big enough in our lives to make us do the rest of this verse. And this is the critical problem for us. We're trying to do little things, but they seem so big to us. So hard. So impossible. We're so unwilling to do them. It's because we're missing something that devalues all that. That makes it not so precious to us. We're missing it. But if if you were busy playing Monopoly, you know, you and your friends and your family, you got a big Monopoly game going on and and, and you are, you are owning some serious real estate, right? You got the the critical ones. You are, you got money coming in. You're one of those people that's got a little stack of 500s, but they're hidden under the board. You know what I'm talking about? It's like, you're not fooling anybody. Come on, people. We know everybody's hiding money under the board. So you got, you got thousands and thousands and all this property. If I walked up to you with, with a $100 bill, I said, I, I give you this for all that. 
No, a real $100 bill. I'm not talking about a Monopoly money. A real $100 bill. How many of y'all would trade your thousands in your real estate in a second? No big deal, right? Because that $100 bill is more real than your Monopoly game. Because your Monopoly game is just a little temporary deal. Where for a moment, you look like you're really, really successful. You're a real estate tycoon. You've got money coming in and you have achieved success. And all four people playing are really, really impressed with you. (laughs) But here's the reality. You're going to fold all that up, put it back in the box. (laughs) And you're going to realize... My Monopoly game was but for a moment. And then all of life's going to go on. See, if I gave you a $100 bill, you'd be done with that in a second. See, that's our problem. Some of us haven't seen that we've been given something much more valuable. And so Paul gets this. There's this ultimate weighty thing in my life that makes everything else feel like it's Monopoly money. It's not precious to me anymore. I can play the game, I can not play the game. I can win or lose. It doesn't matter. Everybody's sitting at the table, whether they think I'm awesome or not. Doesn't y'all actually finish Monopoly and you're depressed because everybody's not impressed with you? It's like, oh man, I was off today. Honey, what's wrong? Days later, honey, what's wrong? I just know they all think I'm a loser. Uh... What are you talking about? The Monopoly game the other night. It's like nobody thinks this way, right? There's ultimate things. See, the giant mistake is when you, when you don't have ultimate things in your life, you know, all you got then is the Monopoly game. And that's what's defining you. And you're losing sleep over that. And you're freaking out over that. And you're controlled by that. And you're afraid of things because of that. Because there's nothing bigger than that in your life. Well, for Paul, there was. But, but here's a critical thing for us. It, it's, it's not enough to merely know that there are ultimate things. Most Christians know that there are ultimate things. And, you know, if you're really a Christian and I were to ask you the question, hey, most important thing, most important thing in all the world. You know, somewhere along your list is going to be, right at the top, it's going to be God and the gospel. I mean, you're not going to get too far on your list without those two things. That, that, that's what's going to come up. You're going to talk about God being the ultimate thing. That's the reason why we exist. All things are for the purpose and glory of God. You're going to say something theologically that's, that's good. And, and the gospel and the importance of the gospel and taking the gospel. There's nothing more important for people to hear the gospel. So we, we know there's this ultimate thing out there. But, but yet, when we go to do what Paul was doing in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, we, we can't seem to do it. Paul did everything for the sake of the gospel that he might win others. And so, all of Christianity that can agree, God is ultimate and the gospel is ultimate, yet we can't seem to share the gospel with anybody. We can't engage them in a way that might be uncomfortable and difficult. We just, we just can't seem to do it. We can't seem to do weighty things. We can't seem to do hard things. We can't seem to get around people who make us uncomfortable, whoever they are, whatever form and fashion they come in. Whether it's racial issues, social issues, personality issues, church issues, whatever it is. It doesn't take much of an issue for us to just decide, I'm steering away from that. I'm not going to be around that. I'm not going to be a part of that. That's, that's too hard. You know, for the sake of the gospel, people won't even stay in their marriages today for the sake of the gospel. And these weren't people that you started off hating or being so different from them. You fell in love. You like this person better than anybody else on the planet. And then when it got hard, I don't know if I want to do this anymore. See, that, that, that kind of stuff screams. There's something else that doesn't weigh enough. And all I got is this and it just feels really, really, really weighty. There's something else that makes the Apostle Paul go, there's nothing precious to me after this. I've got this and anything else sits in a different category now in my life. 
Listen, this is a path to walk. You have made known to me the paths of life. So there is a path that you and I walk on. And if we don't walk very far on it, the weight of God and his gospel being ultimate, it never gets very weighty to us. We don't travel very far down the path and this never gets very weighty. So it seldom outweighs other things. Everything else is a mountain. Everything else is difficult. Everything else is really hard for us. So listen, if if you're reading chapter 9 and you're seeing Paul go into Corinth, go into people's lives, doing it at all cost, and you're wondering, how did that dude do that? Well, he had something that, that we seem to be missing. He had a compulsion on the inside. Let me take apart the rest of that verse, verse 19 there. Here's path number two. And I'm, I'm calling this realization, right? Because I think that's what happens on, on pathways is we realize things, right? You travel down this path, you realize. It, it becomes vivid and clear and meaningful to us. So I've called this realization number one that precedes that ultimate thing. He says, first, I have made myself a servant to all. I have chosen, I have made myself, I have embraced and valued and welcomed being a servant to all. Realization number one, I am serving something bigger than me and my desires. I know that's not rocket science, but today it's rocket science. 24-7, every message you take in and breathe is trying to tell you this is about you. Life is about you. People are supposed to be about you. How things go is about to be about you. And if you want to lift your eyes and see, I don't know if you're going to Jerusalem or not, but wherever it is you'd like to go, because it really is about where you'd like to go. As a matter of fact, who invented the idea that you should be constrained? Constrained, really? That your will and what you want and what you think is best for you should be constrained by something from outside of you? I would not be very popular. I won't get a lot of likes posting this kind of stuff. You're supposed to be empowered to do whatever it is that your heart came up with next. To take you to the place where ultimately you get to define what's going to make you fulfilled and happy. So this stuff is upside down. But we come to the kingdom with the the mindset that somehow everything is about discovering who I am and what's best for me and how to take me on the journey that I want to be on. And then I come to Christ and I make him about that too. Jesus now gets to join me in my self-adventure. And, he get, and I'm going to learn how to pray. And I might, might get a hold of some faith teachings. Because I just want the, the God who's the genie in the bottle. To just give me more of whatever it is that I want. Whatever that untrained, fallen heart of mine wants something. And it's found ultimate value. And I, I, I couldn't even do math well in grammar school. But I've figured out the universe and how it ought to run and what's really best for me. And I'm going to rub the genie and God's going to give me whatever it is that I kind of have figured out with my first grade mentality. Is that really how life is supposed to work? I come to the kingdom and the shock, the shock is I come as a serpent. I am a servant in the kingdom of God. I'm a servant of the king. But I am a servant. I I don't know what I'm expecting my life to take on certain qualities. But a servant's qualities, you know, servants receive things. They don't make demands. How many servants do you know make demands? They don't make demands. By nature, that's not their call. Servants don't self-determine their own agenda. They don't wake up every day going, what would I like to do today? Servants wake up trying to find out how they're constrained by their master. 
to do whatever it is the masters call them to do. Do you know when you come into the kingdom of God, you come as a servant. God takes up his rightful place in our lives as a master, as a king over us. Now listen, I don't know if this sounds popular or interesting or good to anybody here, but you have shown me the paths of life that lead to gladness in your presence. Anybody interested in that? Did you know that servanthood was a path to life? It's not a booby prize. Not a bad deal. It's not something for you and I to get all jazzed and angry about. Hire an attorney and sue God. It's a path to life. Now now just because it feels upside down. Doesn't mean it's not right. I could be totally wrong. About what I think really is going to fulfill me. And make me happy. How many guys have experienced that? You thought something was really going to fix you. You're going to be ultimate source of joy. And, and it just didn't work. It, it broke in its own way. Or it just couldn't fulfill whatever you were after. Listen, Paul came to understand he, he was going to be a servant. And being a servant mean he, he would be around all kinds of settings and people and situations that may not have been his preference. And he lists them all out. He unpacks them right there in front of us, right? Jews. Those under the law. Those outside the law. The weak. Right? These all represent different people with different lifestyles and different ways of approaching things. Different politics and different socioeconomic elements. Different ways of inconvenience, unattractiveness. That's who Paul was going after. He was living amongst that. He was pursuing that because he was a servant. In the kingdom of God, when God says, that person right there, yes, that for the sake of the gospel. Oh, come on, God, really that person? For the sake of the gospel, Keith. Okay. That person right there. But I, I'm not like that person. And, and I don't think they like me, God. I don't think they like me. I, I don't like the way they speak to me. I don't like the way they look at me. Now, this is not going to work well. I'm not going to feel good. They're not here for me. They're not going to applaud me. They're not going to appreciate me. They're not going to do anything that I'm really into, God. This cannot be what you want from me. Right? Does this make sense? Is this the kind of conversations we're having with God? God looks at people, Jews and those under the law, with all kinds of ideas that don't really apply to you, but you're going to act like they do. Those outside the law who live lives that make you want to vomit. Morally just out of bounds people. And you're going to figure out a way to get around them. Uh, I'd rather not go. That may make me uncomfortable. I don't like the way they talk. And I don't like my kids hearing the way they talk. And For the sake of the gospel. Listen, this gets really personal too, doesn't it? It's very safe if I just keep this in the realm of people groups in another continent. But when it becomes the people that you spend time with, the people who are in your world, your relatives, your spouse, your children, your parents, your coworkers, the people in your church, Listen, there's, there's a lack of weight in the category in me that says, for the sake of the gospel, it outweighs everything else. For the sake of the gospel. No, no, no. I, I don't really have that operating in me. So the only thing that's left is, how do you make me feel? What do you do for me? Do I want to be around you or not? Is my future sunny because of you or not? That's all I got left. What if I'm a servant, though, serving an agenda of the king for the sake of the gospel? I might engage all kinds of people. Overrule-oriented people. I mean, y'all just love to be around those people. They got a rule for everything. And they got a way of letting you know that you're not fulfilling their rule. Or the immoral people, those are outside the law who could give a rip about any of your rules. 
who come in to your meal dressed in some way that's not according to your rules and just they're hard to be around and their style and their priorities and their lifestyle. We don't like to be around these people. But I'm a servant, right? Path number two is I'm a servant. This is what gets Paul to being able to do all for the sake of the gospel. Here's one more item that he brings up. And this is how he actually starts the phrase. And the Greek is a little bit different than the way the English picks it up. One Greek Testament translation says, free! That's the word it starts with. Free is what I am. No slave to any human person. Yet I put myself into slavery to every human person. In order to win all the more of them. All right, so how does Paul get here to this in order to, in order to? How does Paul get to this priority? Well, he, he had to be a servant and he had to be free. Really, really free. And this is what intrigues me about this passage. This little twist on words that Paul brings in here. Free is what I am. No slave to any human person, yet I put myself into slavery to others. There's something hidden in here that is powerful in our lives. It's that revelation that when I really get free from people, I am then able to be whatever God wants me to be to those people. But if I'm not free from them, there are certain things I will not do. So you may discover this. This is a little painful discovery in this phrase here. You may discover that there's lots of relating and things that God may have called us to do, but we we just won't do it because of in me, there's not a freedom from you. And that's what Paul wasn't experiencing. Let me just make this point big, right? Here's realization number two. Knowing and experiencing Christ is a path to freedom. It's a path, right? You you just can't know Jesus from a distance. You're going to have to know him well. And he will free you from all kinds of things, right? Remember the the ministry of Jesus. Jesus explained himself as a liberator. Jesus came to do liberation work in the earth. Luke chapter 4, when Jesus stood in the synagogue and he opened the scriptures and he revealed, this is the mission I'm on. This is the passage he read from Isaiah. He said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. Recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus is on a freedom mission. Jesus came to set us free. The Holy Spirit is in our lives for the purpose of freedom. 2 Corinthians 3 verse 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. That's a good word, isn't it? Freedom. We're Americans, we like that word for a lot of good reasons. We're Christians with a little bit of theological savvy under our fingernails. We like that word. But let me ask you some questions about our version of freedom. Because I find that we like paper freedom a whole lot more than we like experiential freedom. All right, so question. What what has power over you? Did I write this out in your outline? What is a controlling dimension of your life? What controls you? What makes you avoid or pursue, not be able to do, afraid, limited, really, really aggressively going after? These are controlling things. What is it that operates in your life that way? All right, here's my proposal. I would propose that nothing in your life comes close to having controlling power over you like yourself. 
I am the greatest source of bondage and boundaries in my life. My unique fallen DNA, my story of experiences, my nervous system of fears and ambitions. They they create a controlling factor in my life. Now listen, you know, hundreds of different faces here this morning in lives. Everybody's got their own little unique DNA fingerprint. I think in some ways when the fall, when sin began to operate and the fall came into humanity, it affected everybody, but probably safe to say it didn't affect everybody in identical ways. Right? There are certain fallen DNA elements in me that, that you might not give the time of day to. That, that, that's never an issue for you. You don't struggle with that. You don't even pay attention to it. But there's stuff in me that, that is just a massive issue. It's a big issue. And I, I can't explain, you know, whether it's genetic, whether, you know, wherever it came from, there's, there's something in me that struggles in certain ways. And you got your own DNA f- fingerprint. And, and then you start to do life. Listen to Dion's story. Uh, you do life in a way that you are affected by the world that you live in. Now, it'd be helpful to hold on to both of those, right? You know, you, you, you're just not damaged goods, and therefore the, the key to your liberation is to find out who messed you up the worst. So come in for counseling. We're going to ask you a lot of questions about your parents and what they did or didn't do and about this person and what they didn't do. ever have this experience. All right, so can I just tell you right now, it's never just that. It's never just that. Because if you had none of that, you're still probably pretty weird. <laughs> and you're weird because of your fallen DNA. When sin found its way into you, it messes with you from the inside out. It just makes you weird. And then you did have life experiences that added their own unique flavor to making things weirder and harder and confusing and disorienting and troublesome and fearful the second you get around that for reasons you don't even quite sure you've ever figured out. This is part of the story of our lives. And then we develop in us this sort of nervous system in us that, that's got fears in it and ambitions in it. And, and sometimes they're just bad reasons all over the place. We're afraid of things that sometimes we shouldn't be afraid of. We're afraid of things that we should be afraid of, but yet God's going to turn around and say, be courageous anyway. So just because you're afraid of something is never the period at the end of the sentence. There's more to the story than that. There are ambitions in us. There are things that we do in an aggressive way that we make room for, that we're sold out to, that we will stick our neck out, we will take risks for. But the question is, why do you do all that? Have you ever had the courage to ask yourself motivational questions of why am I all in in this category? What am I after right here? See, because underneath the mere actions on the outside, there is controlling stuff in us. And that's what freedom wants to go after. Freedom wants to touch those things. So listen, don't, don't just quote to me theology. Oh, we're New Testament Christians. I'm free, brother. Free. Really, can we talk about your life for a few minutes? Can I pull you off the pages of a library? And just spend 24 hours with you with a hidden camera tucked inside your brain. So that we can have a view of all the emotions and the fears and the controlling moments and the ways you manipulate people and the things you're staying away from. Really? I'm so glad you're free, New Testament Christian. But there's so much more to freedom than what you've let it mean. I love N.T. Wright's little angle on this in Corinthians. He says, the Corinthian teachers prided themselves on their freedom. This had several aspects. They were free because Corinth, as a Roman colony, had freedoms and rights that other cities didn't. All right, so that's some political freedom. That's a category of freedom. They were free because in the popular philosophies of the day, people who had true knowledge and wisdom, as they thought they did, 
had discovered true freedom. And now they were free because as Christians, those who had previously been under the Jewish law were, not, were now free from it. So, now they could do what they liked. Or could they? Are you really free to do what you'd like? Now, then you're, you probably just took that question and ran into a theological category. Well, I don't know if it'd be okay if I did certain moral things that were not moral and God would respond and he has an opinion. I'm just talking about, are you free from yourself in such a way that you could actually do what you'd like to do? And that even if God gave you new desires that were very righteous and godly ones, could you do them? Or would your fears and your own ambitions steer you off track to where you couldn't do those. And T. Wright says, his overall point is to make them see that Christian freedom is not freedom to do what you like, but freedom from all the things that stop you from being the person God really wants you to be, which is freedom for the service of God and the gospel. See, this is the freedom that Paul had. Right, so we get to the end of the sentence here, and Paul is able to say, I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might win them. He's able to live that out because there's a freedom in him, a freedom from himself that allows him to talk to anybody about the gospel, to live in categories with people for the sake of the gospel, no matter how difficult, no matter how uncomfortable, no matter how much it makes his skin crawl, there was a freedom from himself that allowed him to do these things. All right, let me, let me conclude with a thought here, just a critically important thought. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull it from John chapter 14 about Jesus who lived a truly free life. Jesus Christ lived a truly free life. And there's a little interesting little group together of thoughts here at the end of chapter 14, the beginning of chapter 15. I'm going to extract from the passage so it's not all these verses. But Jesus at some moment turns to his disciples and says this. Chapter 14, verse 30. The ruler of the world is coming. And he has nothing in me. But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. That is freedom. That is theological, is creaturely, is experiential freedom. When you stand in the place and say that sin and Satan are coming, but they got nothing in me. Because when sin and Satan show up and they got something in you, you're not free. Because sin and Satan are going to grab that thing and twist it and you're going to dance. And you're going to do whatever it is that that thing demands that you do. Because there's something in you that you're not free from. Jesus lived free. He lived free because he lived a life that was loyally in love with the Father. He loyally loved the Father. So in any moment, there was never a moment that sin or Satan could show up and he was pausing to figure out, hmm, what am I going to do right here? No, no, he, he said, I love the Father. I do exactly as the Father commands me. See, when my posture as a creature is to do whatever the creator has ordained for me to do, that's freedom. That's a little different than do whatever. Do what you want. Listen, don't don't respect yourself enough to think that if you just got to do what you want, it would lead to a good place. Did you forget you were fallen? Did you forget the corruption that operates on the inside of us? If I get to do what I want to do, what I 
Apart from the creator, just whatever I want, it will be self-protective or self-advancing in some way. And the second that it's self-protecting and self-advancing, when sin and Satan show up, they got something in me. They got something to work with. Keith's afraid of that. Control him with that. Keith has an ambition for that. That's what matters to him. That's what he wants more than anything else. All right, get a hold of that. Control him with that. Jesus says, you got nothing on me. And nothing. You can't twist me in the wind. Because I, I love the Father. And I do exactly as the Father commands. And then he turns around to his disciples and he says, Abide in me. And I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now listen to this. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. Right? This, this is liberating language right here. What liberated Jesus from not having to serve something that sin and Satan could offer him was the love he had from the Father. He, this was such a rich mountain of a reality in his life. I have the love of the Father. And then he turns to his disciples and said, this is how it works for you. As I abide in his love, right? The next verse. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and I abide in his love. Right? Jesus lived a life abiding in the love of God, experiencing and knowing, tasting and seeing the love of God. And it kept things from controlling him. He had the love of the Father. I I don't need whatever that thing is. You can't control me with that. I don't need to stay away from you. I don't need to be afraid of that. I have the love of the Father. He turns to his disciples and says, Now, I'm going to give you my love as I have received the love from the Father. I'm going to give you that love. Abide in my love. Now that word abide, it's a pathway word. It's not a backpack word. It's not like, well, I threw that in my backpack years ago. I got it in there somewhere. Let me rummage around and see if I can. It's a pathway word. It's a dwell in. It's a cozy up with. It's a share space with. Abide in my love. This is a this is freedom. But it may be freedom that we. We don't know enough of the love of God to truly experience. That, that love doesn't seem to outweigh all of our fears and ambitions and the things that control us. It seems light. These other things seem so heavy. And so I, I can't possibly stay in a relationship with you. I can't possibly share the gospel with you. I can't possibly go where Paul goes. I can't possibly do that. Because this is light rather than very weighty and heavy. There's an abiding dimension here that's just critically important. John chapter 8, Jesus would say, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. If you abide, if you get on the path and travel on the path. See, these paths take us somewhere. If you abide, you will know. And if you don't abide, you won't know. And maybe we respond like the religious folks did. John chapter 8, verse 33. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? These, these were the guys who could answer and talk about freedom from a doctrinal standpoint. Right. I'm a New Testament Christian. What do you mean talking about Keith? I am free. I am free, brother. I'm free in Christ. Hallelujah. Ah, I love you. I appreciate you, but you're scared of your own shadow. You manipulate everybody in your life. You're so angry because the people around you haven't done right by you. You are not released from them. You're not free. You can say you're free in Christ all you want. I understand what you're saying. You're making a theological New Testament argument. Congratulations, and I'm glad you can do that. 
And I hope everybody in this room can do that. The Bible does that. But this is a kind of freedom. Right? You know, being free in that sense may or may not give you the courage to share the gospel or to be anybody to anybody in your world. For that, you're going to need to abide in the love of God and be so overwhelmed and convinced that that's a reality for you. That that's available to you. That it satisfies you. That you become free from others so that you may serve and be a slave to others. Is this making sense? Shake your heads because this matters to me. This message in particular matters to me a lot. Because the disconnect thing drives me nuts about myself. should drive all of us nuts. One last thought here. Eric, you can come back up here. Paul had an experiential awareness of something that comes from God that set him free from others. Paul could stop using and needing people which made him available to be a servant to all from the down and out to the difficult. That's a question. Are you seeking people to serve or are you seeking to be served by people what's missing in your life that's keeping you bound to certain people and certain safe places there are only certain places you're going to go there's only certain things you're going to let yourself do there's only certain people you're going to take the risk of being around what, what, what is that that's doing that to you in your life? Here's what I'd like to do this morning in praying for us. These are pathways, right? That's what Peter picked this up with the gospel immediately and said, this is what David had in mind. He said, God would make known to you these pathways of life. If you travel on them, you will find gladness in God's presence, right? That's the promise of what God is making available to us. So if if you're here this morning and gladness is eluding you, the joy of the life, the adventure God has given is elusive. And it's just not been your experience. I mean, you just hear this one, you're just not happy. And I could offer you an upgrade. Would you take these things as your upgrade? Maybe for some of you that are here this morning, would you, would you recognize that, that there's not anything weighty enough in your life, including God and the gospel, to outweigh other things? And, and, and if that's the case, every speed bump is a mountain to you. And a life full of mountains is a hard, discouraging, unhappy life. Maybe that's where you might need to start. Maybe for some, just the realization, I'm, I'm a servant. What was, I, what was I thinking? What was I expecting? What was I planning on life? I'm, I'm a servant. And just, just, you know, flick the switch. You know, owner, servant. Just flip it. I thought I was owner. Not owner, apparently. Servant servant. It'll change your whole mindset. You'll wake up tomorrow morning with a whole different set of rules, a whole different set of goals, a whole different reason for what you do. You're a servant. But this last one in particular, real freedom, real freedom, not paper freedom, real freedom, comes from abiding in the love of Christ. Abide in my love, dwell in it, soak in it, let it seep into you, let it become deeper and deeper connected with everything about who you are. Abide in my love. That's where real freedom gets experienced. So, might it be that just something that simple is what's missing? A massive key to the unhappiness that could be floating around in our lives? listening to a song the other day, Switchfoot song. Thank you, Phil. 
I knew you wouldn't let me down. Very simple phrase, the song, the title of the song is Let That Be Enough. And it's a story of a young 20-something-year-old whose life just doesn't seem to be working well. He says, wish I had what I needed to be on my own. Because I feel so defeated and I'm feeling alone. It all seems so helpless and I have no plans. I'm a plane in the sunset with nowhere to land. And all I see, it could never make me happy. And all my sandcastles spend their time collapsing. Here's the chorus. Let me know that you hear me. Let me know your touch. Let me know that you love me. And let that be enough. Let's stand up together.